And if you have a Bible, turn to the book of Genesis chapter 9, please. Genesis chapter 9. So, just quick show of hands. How many of you ladies are now happy because you now no longer fear that I'm going to fall off a stage? Yeah, that was very clever. Good job. See, Kelly's paying attention. Uh, I also never fall off the stage. So, all things considered, it, it, it's all logical. It really is. In fact, it's far more likely now that I knock over a speaker and it's much worse. But, with that said, you know what? God has provided for us well, has he not? We've got a space to meet. We've got a roof over our head. We have functioning air conditioning. Um, Look, there are so, so many people around the world that are meeting, fearing threat of being attacked for their faith. There are so many people meeting out in open fields and under trees because that's all they got. There are people that went to worship today walking hours to get where they wanted to go or hiding in a small one room with 40, 50 people. We are blessed, church. And so we will give God thanks and praise for all these provided. And we're grateful that the school's working with us to give us the cafeteria space for now. And who knows what God will do with us in the future. But do keep praying for us, like David mentioned, that we would... um, the elders are, we've have, had some conversations with uh, other schools as well of maybe potential meeting spaces. You want to know more about that? Talk with us later. But right now, the biggest thing we're asking for is that you would pray that God will show us, hey, or can we work out enough details to even bring you something to say, hey, what do you think? So uh, God's good though, right? Are you guys good this morning? Yes. Excellent, excellent. Let's pray together and uh, we'll get started. Father, open your word to us this day and let us see your glory. We ask it in Christ's holy name. Amen. All right, look at Genesis chapter 9. We're going to read from 18 to the end of the chapter and then two verses out of chapter 10. This is the word of the Lord. The sons of Noah who went forth from the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Ham was the father of Canaan. These three were the sons of Noah, and from these the people of the whole earth were dispersed. Noah began to be a man of the soil, and he planted a vineyard. He drank of the wine and became drunk and lay uncovered in his tent. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. Then Shem and Japheth took a garment, laid it on both their shoulders, and walked backward and covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned backward, and they did not see their father's nakedness. When Noah awoke from his wine and knew what his youngest son had done to him, he said, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants shall he be to his brothers. He also said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth, and let him dwell in the tents of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. After the flood, Noah lived 350 years All the days of Noah were 950 years, and he died. Look at the beginning of chapter 10. These are the generations of the sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Sons were born to them after the flood. Then look at the end of the chapter. These are the clans of the sons of Noah, according to their genealogies and their nations. And from these the nations spread abroad on the earth after the flood, and may God bless our study of his word. Every once in a while, you will 
if you are a news reader, run across a headline in the news that surprises you. I have one stuck in my head from 2004. That tells you it's a bad one, right? The headline reads from a BBC article, Christians to bear all in Florida. The article informed us, quote, a new Florida development is offering Christians the chance to bear all, not only in the sight of God, but their own neighbors. The Natura Resort, currently under construction in a Tampa suburb, is a nudist colony with a difference. It aims to provide a wholesome, safe, family-oriented nude environment. To counter the evils, including sexual abuse, it says result from body shame. Developers envision a live-in resort with up to 300 homes, a church, and water park. And no need to bring swimwear. Clearly, these people have never actually gone down a water slide. The article says it may be a few years before the church and water park are completed, but nude marriages and baptisms may be available this spring, according to U.S. reports. How's that for an article? Now, in case you're wondering, because some of you are, the idea apparently did not die out. The group behind that resort Exist. I refused to do the internet research to find out if the resort got off the ground. There are certain things you just don't want in the cache of your cookies on your internet explorer, if you know what I'm talking about. Now here's a question for you. What is it about that headline and that story that says to us, this isn't right? Makes you blush, makes you laugh, makes you roll your eyes and say, my goodness. What is it? As Christians, we know, don't we, that there's something just plain wrong about this idea. Now, is that because we're ashamed of the human body, as these people would say? Of course not. We know that husbands and wives are able to see each other without any reason for shame. But we know that God has shown us in his word that modesty, that Covering our bodies is right public behavior. As far as I know, every one of you is dressed today. And I'm glad for that. Well, in today's passage, we're going to see a story of someone who fails to uphold the biblical standard of modesty along with a few other pretty big problems. And it leads to major harm in his family, and that family problem exposes a major heart problem that runs through all of humanity. And no, today's message is not about nudity. It's about something much greater. It's about sin and judgment and mercy that continued in the family of Noah even after the flood took place. If you're a note taker, three points. Be ready for three. No sub points. So Harold can't make fun of me for having extra points this week. Point number one, remember the common family of mankind. Remember the common family of mankind. Genesis 9, 18 and 19 again say, The sons of Noah who went forth from the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Ham was the father of Canaan. These three were the sons of Noah, and from these the people of the whole earth were dispersed. 
You know, the book of Genesis has shown us some incredible truths about God, man, and the rest of creation. Back in chapter 1, we saw that God made the world for His glory, including creating humanity in His image. We saw in Genesis 3 that the people that God made rebelled against Him. They refused to follow the ways of God, and they earned the judgment of God for that. But in the same chapter... We hear a glorious promise from God. In Genesis 3, God said He was going to send somebody into the world that would set things right between God and His people. He would crush the evil one who had tempted the humans. It's a good promise. But as the story continued, we saw that Adam and Eve had children and Cain killed Abel. And it looked like the promise could die. But God allowed Seth to be born and a family line to carry the promise of God continued. And by chapter 6, the world had become corrupt and it was violent to such an extent that God said He was going to destroy every living, breathing creature, including all of humanity. And it again looked like the promise would die. But in chapters 6 through 8, we met Noah. And God gave grace to Noah and to his family. And he rescued them alive while he destroyed all the rest of the world with the flood. And Noah kept with him representative animals of all kinds so that the world could be repopulated. And so not only was the animal kingdom preserved, but the family line of promise is still going. A little side note for you when you study your Bible, especially your Old Testament. Watch how often it looks like the promise could die. And watch the amazing things God does to keep it alive. Then, last week, we saw in Genesis 9, God taught Noah about the importance of human life. And He gave Noah standards about how we're supposed to relate to the animals. And in verses 8 through 17, God made a covenant with Noah and with all creatures. Never again... Am I going to destroy the whole earth with a flood? And man, right now things look good. Everything is fresh. Everything's clean. Animals are reproducing. Noah's family is alive. There's no such thing as reality television yet. It looks like things are good. In fact, it looks like the promise could happen right now, right? I mean, if you're Noah, you're thinking, hey. We're off the ark. It's all clean. You promised you're going to crush the devil and make everything perfect. Now's a good time. But we can see even in the verses we just read, lots of good stuff, right? I mean, first of all, the three sons are alive, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. They they rode the storm out, if you will, right? And all the nations of the world are going to descend from these guys. But, To the Hebrew reader of the Old Testament, there's already a hint that it's not going to stay perfect. Just in those two verses, there's a hint. If if you were a Jew, you'd get it. In a little aside, Moses, the author of Genesis, reminds us that Ham is the father of Canaan. Now, what is it about that that would tell the Jew something's wrong? And no, it's not that Jews weren't allowed to eat ham. That wasn't it. I just thought of that on the spot, just so you guys know. That just came to my head right now. It's inspiration. Uh, Canaan. If you were a Jew, you know that Canaan is the father of the Canaanites. And the Canaanites 
They're the bad guys. For all of their lives, the Canaanites were always messing their days up. But even before we talk about how the bad guys came about, we better learn something about them. And what's repeated all through Scripture about humanity. And that is that we, human beings, are all one family. All humans descend from Adam and Eve. After the flood, all humans, even the Canaanites, can trace their family tree straight through Noah. We are all related. We are all brothers and sisters. And one of the most troubling sins in our history is the sin of racism. Racism is the assumption that lots of us make that someone who comes from a different culture is somehow fundamentally different from us or even lesser than us. Back in the early days of America, people could be bought and sold as property if their skin was dark. In Germany in the 20th century, Adolf Hitler taught the Nazis to despise ethnic Jews, convincing them that Jews were a different subhuman species. The Nazis would tell their soldiers that Jewish people were vermin, like rats. And so you could kill them with impunity. That was evil. So Christians, here's just a quick reminder and challenge for you, okay? Remove from your mind, and I would urge you to remove from your vocabulary, the category of race. There's no such thing, because there's only one race, humanity. That's it. If somebody is a human being, they are your kin. We might look different. We might have different cultures. We might have different languages, different backgrounds. We might value different things. We might eat different foods. But we are all family. And if you miss this, you bring about hardships on earth and you dishonor God. So Christians, remember the common family of mankind. Second point. Guard against sin. Let's learn to guard against sin. Verse 20 and all the way through 23. Noah began to be a man of the soil. And he planted a vineyard. He drank of the wine and became drunk and lay uncovered in his tent. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. Then Shem and Japheth took a garment, laid it on both their shoulders, and walked backward and covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned backward and they did not see their father's nakedness. So here we have our story taking a sad, but not altogether unexpected twist. Remember that Noah... What did we learn about Noah back at the, in chapter 6? God looked at Noah. He said Noah was a righteous man. Please remember, Noah's a good guy. But Noah's not a perfect man. 
Noah is descended from Adam, that guy that first rebelled against God. And the nature of sin runs true in Adam's family line. If you are descended from Adam, the nature of sin is in you. Noah had it. And man, look at this, this section. It looks like the world has been recreated, right? We're repeating so many things from Genesis 1, 2, and 3. And here come some parallels. Like Noah plants a garden. Have you ever seen anybody plant a garden before in the Bible? Well, God did in Genesis 2. There are plants and fruit. We saw that in Genesis 2. And there is sin related to the plants. Just like in Genesis 3. And, and Noah grows some grapes and he learns to make wine. And there's nothing in the Bible that indicates a problem with that. When the Bible talks about wine, it often uses really positive language. Like Isaac blesses Jacob in Genesis 27:28. He says, God, give, give him plenty of grain and wine. In Leviticus 23.13, wine is poured out to God as an offering. Deuteronomy 14, drinking wine, if the people wanted to, was to be a part of a great national celebration before the Lord. Psalm 104.15 tells us God has given wine to gladden the heart of man. In Song of Solomon 1.2, the woman compares her lover to wine. In the New Testament, Jesus turns water to wine at a wedding in John 2. Paul tells Timothy, use wine as medicine in 1 Timothy 5. Of course, I would say most notable of all, Jesus used wine as part of the ordinance of the Lord's Supper, communion. That represents the new covenant in the blood of Jesus. But for as many verses that speak positively of wine as a blessing, there are just as many that warn against the foolish sin of drunkenness. Misused wine is dangerous and deadly. God often uses an image of, of a cup of foaming wine as a picture of his, of his wrath. As a drunk would swallow that wine to his own destruction, so the wrath of God would bring destruction on anybody who opposes him. So where Noah made his mistake was not in planting a vineyard, not in making wine. He failed by overindulging in wine. By making himself drunk. That was wrong. That was a problem. Now, compounding Noah's sin, in his drunkenness, he passed out in his tent naked. Being drunk made him forget propriety. He stopped thinking about the consequences of his actions. And later, Noah's son, Ham, the father of Canaan, comes into the tent where Noah was, passed out, where Noah was all exposed, and Ham saw his father's nakedness and then told his brothers, Happy Father's Day. Shem and Japheth, on their part, took the problem seriously. They respected Noah. They respected his shame. They walked into the tent backwards. They did not disrespect him. They averted their eyes. They covered up Noah. Now, before we even start to think about the consequences... Let's remind ourselves here, guard against sin. In your life, put up barriers to guard against sin. Why? Noah was the most righteous man on earth. But he had a nature of sin. 
Noah dropped his guard, got careless, and sinned in a shameful way. By the way, I understand. Don't you? I mean, right now, what, what's your heart? Is your heart in the, you're sitting there in your chair going, man, what an idiot Noah was. Or are you going, that's kind of like me. Because it's a lot like us. I mean, maybe Noah wasn't used to that wine that he was drinking. Maybe, maybe Noah was just having a big party on his own going, I'm finally off the ship. I'm finally away from the animals. There's nobody in this tent with me right now. I'm just happy to be here. If you had spent a year on a boat with your family and no way out, maybe he just wanted to unwind. I get it. I do. But Noah dishonored God by letting himself get drunk. And he got so drunk that he passed out naked. But, here's the thing, Christians. If Noah, the most righteous man of his day, could fail like that, how easy would it be for you or me to fail? I promise you Noah was a better man than me. Noah had seen more of the miracles of God than we have. Noah had seen more of the wrath of God than we have. Noah's faith was very, very real. But Noah was not immune to sin. And so far be it from you or me to think that we will not be tempted with sin in a way that could be dangerous to us. We must fight against our sin nature every day. We must battle for every step of sanctification in our lives like we learned in Sunday school a moment ago. So long as you live on this earth, so long as you have skin on, until you die or Jesus comes again, you have to guard yourself against sin. Now the application point here, which I won't even spell out for you because you know you better than I know you, is to ask yourself, where do I need to put my guard up? Where do I need to say, while this might be okay for some people, I'm not going to go there? Don't let this roll off. Third point for this morning. Third point. Thank God for covering our shame. Thank God for covering our shame. Genesis 9, 24-27 When Noah awoke from his wine and knew what his youngest son had done to him, he said, Cursed be Canaan. A servant of servants shall he be to his brothers. He also said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth and let him dwell in the tents of Shem and let Canaan be his servant. So Noah wakes up and he finds out what happened and Noah is furious. What had Ham done? What was wrong with Ham's actions? There are people who have studied this passage and they've tried to read between the lines of the story and they assume that Ham must have done something not recorded here. Something very inappropriate. Some people argue that Ham did some kind of violence to Noah. Some people argue that it was something sexually inappropriate. 
But there's nothing in the text that tells us anything like that. All it tells us is that Ham willingly looked at his father while he was passed out and that Ham went out and told his brothers. And it was in the looking and in the telling that angered Noah. By the way, think back to when Adam and Eve fell, when they sinned. The first thing that happened after they ate the fruit, parallel to chapter 3, they, they sinned against God and they realized they were naked and they realized that they needed their nakedness to be covered up because the nakedness of Adam and Eve in the garden represented to them the shame of their sin against God. And when God came to Adam and Eve, if you recall, God was merciful to them. God covered their nakedness with animal skins. God covered over their shame. Now, later in Scripture, we'll see that God does promote appropriate modesty among his people, right? We're not saying a parent couldn't give their kid a bath. We're not saying that a husband and wife aren't supposed to be naked in, their, in each other's presence. That's a different issue entirely. But God did warrant, say things to priests like, listen, if, if you're going to get up near an altar, you better wear drawers. It's in the Bible. I can't help it. It's there, right? Exodus 20, 26, The priests were not to allow their private parts to be exposed that's why they couldn't go up steps to an altar. Oh, anyway, Ham looked at Noah. That's what we have. And you know what? Ham could have very kindly, very graciously covered Noah himself. He could have followed the gracious pattern of God. He could have covered his father's shame, but he didn't. Instead, Ham looked, and then he talked. We don't know the tone. Did he laugh? Did he go outside and say, guys, you've got to see this. The old man is passed out naked in the tent. Maybe. So Noah then comes out of this, and there are some blessings and some curses that Noah pronounces following an incident that Noah brought on himself. And in the blessings and curses, we see a clear delineation of two paths in his descendants. You know, Adam's sin led to two lines. So does Noah's. The line of Cain, the line of Seth came out of Adam. Here we have a line of evil, a line of promise, the same kind of thing. Noah's family have a line of evil and a line of promise marked out basically by the three sons. So the curse that Noah pronounces, though, first, it's really wild because he talks about Canaan. We don't have any evidence that Canaan was there. Is Noah punishing Canaan for Ham's sin? Some people have gotten a big, you know, lots of writing out of this. Isn't that opposed to Scripture? Here's the thing. In truth, the words of Noah are more a prophecy than a punishment. Noah tells Ham, here's what your family is going to be like. And the pattern of family behavior is, a, is an image of, it's a picture of the heart of him. Noah says, Canaan, the son, the descendant, the only descendant we're talking about here of him, he, he's going to be a servant to his brothers. His people are going to be servants to his brother's people. And any Israelite reading this, any Hebrew reading this, reading this would say, Canaan, father of the Canaanites, they're the nations in the land. The Hebrews, they went into the land, they warred against the Canaanites, they drove the Canaanites out of the land, they made Canaanites subservient to the people of Israel. It really happened. But then on the other hand, Noah praises God and he pronounces blessings on Shem and Japheth. 
Now, Shem gets the lion's share of the blessing here. But Japheth has it good too. Japheth is going to be welcomed into the tents of Shem. It's like they become eventually one big group. Line of promise. Shem and Japheth will have the descendants of Canaan under them. Now, there's two things I want you to see here. First, here again, the call to guard against sin. Ham sinned. Ham's heart was evil here. He chose to expose Noah's shame. And in doing so, his character seems to have infected his family. Ham's children were like him. They followed his pattern of reveling in shame. And their descendants after them became enemies of God. Like Cain's line, like Cain's family, Ham's family brought pain. Let's not be the kind of people who embrace sin. Why? One reason you don't want to embrace sin is because your children after you are likely to imitate what they see in you. Your friends, the people close to you, are likely to be influenced by you. And if you teach others to uncover shame, to revel in the failures of others, to love exposing it when somebody messes up, to throw off the standards of God, you will bring harm to yourself, harm to your family, and harm to others around you. Guard against that attitude. Now, I am not saying that every parent who lives well gets to have godly children. Nor am I saying that every parent who has ever failed will have lost children. Life has never been that simple. But when we become the kind of people who magnify shame, who roll around in shame, we hurt others and we dishonor God. So let's guard against it. Again, personal application for you. Is there a place in your life that you kind of roll around in shame and show it off rather than covering it up? Whose shame do you like to expose? Shem and Japheth, though, they remind us of the kindness and blessing of God. Shem is really blessed. In fact... If you were an Israelite reader, you would have known that Shem is the father of the family that would become the people of God. Did you know that? Have you guys ever heard the word uh, Semitic people? Or ever heard heard of the sin of anti-Semitism? Semitic people are the descendants of Shem. Shem and Semitic, they're the same root. So the Hebrews, the Israelites, the Jewish nation descends from Shem. And in the families of Shem and Japheth, what do we see the line of promise do? We see it living, we see it continuing, we see God preserving the promise. Just like God preserved the promise by bringing Seth into the world after Cain's sin, God preserves his promise by blessing Shem and his brother, even in this ugly scene that's so soon after the flood, when God had to think, I could just squash them and be done with this. The mercy of God lives on. And we want to magnify the mercy of God like Shem and Japheth did. We want to be the kind of people that lead people to the place where their shame can be covered. 
Because you know what, folks? We all have sin. We all are exposed before God. And we should be ashamed in the light of God. But there is a covering for your sin. That covering is not a mere animal skin. The covering for the sin and the shame of people is the grace of God in Jesus Christ. One of the key pictures of forgiveness in the Bible is that your sin be covered And when Jesus suffered and died for the sins of God's children, he made it possible for your shame to be covered. So no longer do we stand before God naked, dirty, and exposed. But because of Jesus, everyone who comes to Jesus has their guilt removed and has their shame covered. And how sweet is it that God sees you, Christian, and sees the beautiful perfection of the righteousness of Christ clothing you. Instead of you there naked in all your failures. Thank God for covering our shame. Now I need to make one quick side note before we finish. Because I do not want there to be any misunderstandings among us. So pay attention to me. When I magnify covering shame, never hear me calling for us to cover up wrong, especially abuse. If someone is hurting another person, that cannot be hidden. Abuse has to be exposed so that proper authorities can put a stop to it. So, Christian, if you ever hear of someone being physically abused, especially, don't hide that. Don't cover up for someone who's hurting other people. Tell the proper authorities and then help them find healing in the grace of Christ. Make sense? Okay. Now, 28 and 29. This is wild. Watch how the tone changes. After the flood, Noah lived 350 years. All the days of Noah were 950 years, and he died. All of a sudden, as the section draws to a close, the author takes us back to the language that we saw back in Genesis 5. Remember back in there, we saw the genealogy, right? And for generations after Adam, we had this person, he lived this many years, he had so-and-so as his son, he lived this many more years, had other sons and daughters, and he died. And now we see that same language wrapping up the life of Noah. Noah lived 500 years before his sons were born. He was 600 years when the flood came. He lived another 350 years after the flood, and then Noah died. The pattern of people dying has not been broken. Noah was not the ultimate rescuer who would turn around the curse. Noah might remind us of the promised one of God, but Noah and his failure and Noah's death tell us we are still waiting for the one God promised in the garden so many years ago. Then 10.1 These are the generations of the sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Sons were born to them after the flood. So we see that phrase, these are the generations of, and that tells us we're at a new chapter in the story. The page is turning. We're following a new branch on the family tree. And we see that the world continues in the family lines of Shem and Ham and Japheth. And To many of your great relief, we are not going to read all of chapter 10 in its entirety. But we will take a look at a couple of its key points because they fall right in line here. Uh, People call chapter 10 of Genesis the table of the nations. The table of nations. Because it's not just a family tree. It's an explanation for how did all the different nations of the world come out of Noah's family. 
And it's really neat, actually. There are 70 nations mentioned here. There were more that existed. God could, the author could have listed more. But, but it seems like he said, you know what, 70 gives me a good round picture of completeness. Sometimes he tells us about the children. Sometimes even the grandchildren of Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Often in this, as the author arranges it, he, he groups the names together in groups of sevens. Sometimes he lists personal names. Sometimes he lists names that are more related to the nations or the cities or the lands. It's really cool, though, when you study Genesis. Here we start the table of nations with 70 nations, a complete picture of the world. At the end of the book, we see one nation, the people of God, the Hebrews, the family of Jacob. It's a family of 70 people. Maybe that's supposed to tie together to show us just how perfect and complete God's chosen people carrying the promise would be. Verses 2 to 5, we see the family line of Japheth. And the people that we see there, they father nations that are far away from the land of Israel, physically, geographically. They settle in the far north. They settle in what is now modern Russia. They settle in what is now Europe. They settle in the Greek Isles, and some of them are clearly seafaring peoples. Later in the Bible, when you see the descendants of Japheth named, they're often mentioned in the passages that predict the global rule of the Messiah, God's chosen king. The fact that Jesus will rule those people is a sign that he rules the whole world. That's what that's about, from sea to sea and even beyond. Verses 6 through 14 give us the sons of Ham. 15 to 20 specifically focus on the descendants of Canaan. And to look at those lists, show us people and nations that are going to cause the people of God great troubles, especially in the Old Testament. These are the nations of people that stand against God and stand against His ways, and they try time and time again to kill the people of Israel. Some important names in that section? How about Egypt, Canaan, Assyria, Nineveh, the Philistines, all kinds of ites. Amalekites and Girgashites, Jebusites, Termites, all the rest are in there. They're all the people that Israel's called to drive out of the land. But then, verses 21 to 31, we get the sons of Shem. Now, Shem's the firstborn. You put the firstborn last on the list, you're telling us, hey, here comes the important one. This is the one that matters. Let me just show you one verse. Look down at verse 25, Genesis 10, 25. To Eber were born two sons. The name of the one was Peleg. For in his days the earth was divided. And his brother's name was Joktan. You feel inspired, don't you? How many of you just memorized that verse? I'm going to keep that one in my, in my memory verse cards. None of you did you. Okay. The name Eber, according to some scholars, is where the word Hebrew comes from. There's, that was my, well, I didn't know that when I was studying. Eber, Hebrew. Eber has two sons, Peleg and Joktan. During Peleg's time, the Bible says the land was divided. Hard to say for sure what that meant. It could have been many things. A lot of people think that it means that Peleg and Joktan went different directions during the division of the people at the Tower of Babel, which we'll see in the next chapter. And it kind of makes sense because 
Now, at, the, at that point forward, we see the descendants of Joktan listed, but we see nothing about Peleg here in chapter 10. But in chapter 11, we see Peleg's descendants listed, and they father the people that father the people that become the people of God. The promised people of God come through Peleg's line. Then in verse 32, these are the clans of the sons of Noah, according to their genealogies, in their nations, and from these the nations spread abroad on the earth after the flood. So here's the closing of the chapter, right? We see the first point that we already made. Remember the common family of mankind. It is from Noah's line that these nations, that this symbolically full list of nations arises. It's out of Noah that we get all the peoples of the world. The world spread out from Noah. The world spread out from his sons. And we'll learn how that happened. We'll learn how it came about next week, Lord willing, when we see chapter 11. But what do we do with something like this? Because the last chapter is just plain boring. It's names. How does this help us? Remember the common family of mankind. We're all united as a family. This has to change how you think about other people from other countries who look different, who have different cultures. It has to change the way you treat other people because you realize you are my kin. You are my brother. You are my sister. I don't care if you look different than me. Christians, we should be the people that lead the world against any type of racism. We just should. Because we, unlike the rest of the world, have a reason to believe that we are all united as one because God made us from one couple. We also learn from this whole section, be on guard against sin. Sin is dangerous, it's destructive, it's deceptive. It sneaks up on us when we're not careful. So fight against it with all your might. But then, oh, thank God for covering our shame. If you're a Christian, know that all that for which you should be ashamed has been covered by the sacrificial blood of Jesus. God clothes us in the righteousness of Christ. And when He sees us, He sees His child perfect and forgiven. If you don't yet know Jesus, I would urge you to learn from this today. This story, even the family tree shows us there's a real difference between those who follow God and those who oppose God. Don't fight God. You won't win. Instead, let go of any belief that you get to be in charge of your life. Turn away from your sin Ask God to be in charge. Ask Him to forgive you of your sins by believing in Jesus who died for your sin and rose from the grave. If you trust in Jesus, you can know God has given you new life by His grace for His glory and for your good. And so I urge us all, trust Jesus and follow Him with all our lives. You need help with that? Talk to me when we're done here. Let's bow together for a word of prayer and then we'll sing a song of response. Lord God, we thank you because you are good. We thank you because you are holy and worthy of praise. We thank you for creating us. We thank you for teaching us what sin is. We thank you for the call to battle against sin. God, we thank you so much for Jesus who died to cover 
our sin and to give us life. And now, Lord, as we sing a song that reminds us of how easy it is for us to wander, God, would you help us also to give you great praise. We ask it in Christ's holy name. Amen.